Welcome to the African Climate Breakdown podcast, a show on climate change with a particular focus on Africa. I'm your host, Beth Mackay, standing in for our regular host, Dr. Suzanne Carter. I'm the Knowledge Manager for the Coordination Unit of Future Climate for Africa, or FCFA. FCFA works to improve the understanding of how Africa's climate is changing, how this affects communities, and what can be done to create a climate-resilient future. Join us as we delve into the research of FCFA and hear on-the-ground stories of climate change in Africa. Since 2015, Future Climate for Africa has brought together more than 200 researchers from over 20 countries to improve our understanding of Africa's climate, how it is changing, and how it might change in the future. It has been five years packed with highlights and groundbreaking new knowledge on Africa's climate, the threats climate change poses to the cities we live in, the water in our taps, the food we eat, the communities who grow it, and so much more. Climate patterns in Africa, however, continue to change, and as a result, people suffer. A legacy that FCFA hopes to see is more research and findings to help African decision makers understand the problematic effects of climate change and what they can do about it. We asked some of the FCFA team members to sum up in three words their experience working on their various projects over the past five years. Here's what they had to say. My experience with the FCFA has been enlightening, challenging, and mostly invaluable. Embedding, informative, creative. I'm Bamadama from Côte d'Ivoire. In the CFA program, I increased collaboration, sharing, and knowledge. Exciting, wonderful, and captivating. Learning, coding, and writing. So in the last five years, what has FCFA's progress been in understanding Africa's changing climate? As we know by now, extreme weather events are increasing, making Africa one of the most at-risk regions in the world. Even though African countries are incorporating climate change into strategies and plans in order to help to manage these impacts, our understanding of what drives Africa's climate and how it may change is still quite poor. One of the key goals of FCFA was to produce a step change in the scientific understanding of Africa's climate. Impala has been spearheading this charge and feeding into many of the FCFA regional pilot projects. Working at a pan-African scale, Impala has improved knowledge and modeling of Africa's climate, providing better climate simulations and future projections for the continent. I'm joined today by Dr. Kath Senior, who is the Head of Understanding Climate Change at the Met Office Hadley Centre in the UK, and who is also the Principal Investigator for the Impala Research Team. Thanks for joining us, Kath. So, so let's get started. Um, as we've heard in our previous episodes, Impala has been doing groundbreaking work in terms of model developments. Kath, can you speak about how this helped improve the quality of climate information for Africa? So I think we've uh, worked on three fronts within Impala on that. We've certainly tried to deliver better knowledge on local climate projections including extreme events, which are obviously so important for impacts uh, over Africa. Um, so specifically, we found that uh, there are, we expect greater increases in extreme rainfall over much of Africa, much larger increases than we had 
predicted before. Um, and also difference in the way the dry spells, for example, will affect the continent. And this is because we now have a model that can start to capture sort of the, the important events, uh, the important climate processes around that, like thunderstorms, for example. Um, and so having a model that is able to capture those gives us greater confidence in the information that we're giving on these extreme events like flash flooding or um, or dry spells. And of course, that has important uh, information and applications for sectors like agriculture, for the urban planning environment. And we've actually worked through within Impala and in, in with some of the other regional consortia in FCFA um, to, to see the impacts on things like tea production, on flood risk in some of the different uh, cities within Africa. Um, so, so I think that's been a very important aspect of the things we do. But we've also tried to use the information we've gained from our very high resolution climate models to improve the more standard climate models. And the, the information from these, these lower resolution models is, is also still really important. They enable us to do much longer uh, runs to, to look at how, how climate might project out in, into the future enables us to capture some of the uncertainty around modelling by using a range of different um, models. And so it's, it, and also uh, critically, how other parts of the world might influence Africa. So it allows us to run uh, our simulations across the whole world. And so there are important, the role of things like the El Nino Southern Oscillation event, which people might have heard of, and how that influences Africa and other um, modes, what we call modes of variability, how they influence the continent. And we've been able to make important progress uh, on that. So, for example, we've, we've been able to give improved predictions for uh, East African rainfall in the March, April, May season um, on, a, on a seasonal timescale. Um, and that's obviously incredibly useful for people making planning, again, for things like agriculture. And the final thing I would say we've done is um, we've delivered new ways of, of understanding the measure or measures of drivers of African climate. Um, and this is this is because we've specifically what we've called put an African lens, if you like, on our model. Um, so we've engaged African scientists who have a lot of knowledge, obviously, of the local processes uh, within the system, within their regions. And they've brought to the to bear, if you like, on our model, some understanding, some knowledge of their processes, some observations, for example. And it's really the first time that these kind of this kind of critical view has been taken of, of some of the global models that run. And that's really helped us uh, to improve our models. And also engage, it's been very engaging uh, for, for our, the African partners and scientists within our project. Thanks, Kath. It's, it's really great to hear how Impala has helped to, I guess, improve this understanding of Africa's climate through climate modelling. And as you said, understanding the drivers. And it's really nice to see how this information has been applied to the regional research groups of FCFA. And um, I know you kind of highlighted um, some of the key achievements, but is there any particular highlight that stands out to you um, from Impala's research over the past five years? Yes, so um, for me, I think the key highlight has been the, the model simulation that we've called CP for Africa. This is a, a particularly high-resolution model that we have run over the whole continent. Um, it's been an integrated piece of work that has pulled together all of the work packages within Impala, but critically also has engaged a lot of the scientists in all the other research consortia. And it's both delivered exciting new science, some of which I, I mentioned in terms of delivering 
new information on extremes, for example. Um, but also because we've linked strongly with the other uh, groups, the other research consortia, it's delivered um, um, through the pilot projects within the research consortia. It's delivered to risk narratives. So it's already really giving better climate information for decision makers, even within the short time period of Impala. So we feel that, that CP for Africa has really paved the way for a kind of international approach to these high resolution modeling. And finally, I would say that from this model now, we've made, we're starting to make the data available. There's something like two petabytes of data. There's an awful lot. Um, but we're working to make it as easily accessible as possible from the African continent um, and, of course, from Europe. And that will allow the wider range of researchers to really investigate the new data from this model um, and hopefully use sophisticated analysis software and platforms uh, to really, uh, you know, pull apart what's what's in this uh, new data set and find more and more useful information. So I think, you know, this has been, to me, this has really been the highlight of Impala, and I hope that the data from this model and the things that we'll learn from that will be uh, important for many years to come. Thanks, Kath. And I guess with the great amount of progress that Impala has made, as you've spoken to, I'm sure there were a couple of challenges um, and lessons that you've learned being part of Impala. Do you have any you would like to speak to? Yeah, so I think on the positive side, you know, I would say Impala was really successful because of the people in it. We had top class scientists from both the UK and from Africa. And the, the structure of the whole uh, Future Climate for Africa program uh, meant that we had the sort of detailed work going on in Impala that I've talked about, um, but that it linked really, really strongly to the more transdisciplinary research going on in the, uh, in the research consortia. Uh, and enabled this very strong pull through from, you know, uh, in, in what is quite a short program, um, right down to users on the ground. Um, we, we built on our existing relationships with partners in Africa. Uh, and then FCFA really helped us to build, to find um, early career researchers to work in those groups and those teams. And I think that's helped us to build capacity in Africa. So that was definitely a lesson um, that, that, you know, we, we were able to uh, work with partners that we knew and, and had the expertise already, but to help them build that kind of critical capacity. Um, I think on the negative side, um, certainly getting data to Africa, getting enabling the scientists to be able to, to use the data has been a challenge. Um, it's an ongoing challenge. And as, as our data sets grow and get bigger, we really need to kind of prioritise that thinking about how we will do that right from the start of the projects. And as I said, we need to make better use, I think, of these um, complicated uh, data analysis platforms. And that's starting to happen. Um, so in terms of what, what I might recommend, I think, I would certainly encourage projects to be this kind of end-to-end. -end. Um, and also something that we've learned in the last year has been that, that we can use virtual platforms really successfully, and perhaps that helps us. So we're, we're not so limited by travel, for example. Great. And um, I guess before we wrap up, you already touched on it a bit, um, the aspect of uh, capacity uh, development of African climate scientists. Uh, why do you think this is important? And how do you think we can support the, the next generation of climate scientists in Africa? So I think it's uh, it's really important that we can build some expertise in climate modelling and evaluation in Africa. At the moment, there are a few expert people, but the numbers are low. Um, 
it's true that most uh, climate modeling capability is developed and run outside of Africa. And that really has meant that there hasn't been a focus on the, the capability of the models over the African continent. So bringing in African scientists to really you know, focus on what are the important things and help to develop models is, is particularly important. As I said, in Impala, we built uh, the team around some key people and then we used uh, the available sort of innovation money to, to help those people build their teams. And I think this is this has really acted to build a kind of critical capacity or critical mass of people within certain uh, groups um, across the continent. And so I, I hope that we can continue to support those people through things like fellowships, through exchanges uh, where people are, can come and maybe work alongside people within in, in the UK who have a lot of experience of modelling, who are developing models on a daily basis. There's a real appetite, my experience of people within Impala, a lot of the African science is really keen to get involved and they're hugely capable. So it would be absolutely brilliant to be able to um, include people both in our own model development and hopefully in, an, in the first modeling global modeling activity within Africa. Thanks, Kath. Yeah, thanks so much for your time and reflection on Impala. And uh, I look forward to seeing further improvements on the understanding of Africa's climate in the future. And of course, also seeing more support and uh, development for African climate scientists. Now that we've heard about the foundations which have been laid by Impala's climate science work, we're going to focus on some of the work being done in the different regions of Africa. I'm excited to be chatting today to guests from each of the regional research groups. It's only fitting that as we end off this podcast series, we spend some time reflecting on some of the key lessons and success stories from across FCFA. Let's start in Southern Africa, where we've heard how Fractal has been working to understand decision-making around climate risks within cities. Alice McClure from the Climate Systems Analysis Group at the University of Cape Town and the project manager of Fractal is joining us today. Alice, what would you say were some of the success stories of Fractal? So Fractal was really about wrestling with understanding climate change risks in the context of cities. And I think one of the main successes of the project was um, allowing the societal stakeholders to decide what we should focus on. So considering the potential risks in the future and guiding the climate scientists in terms of the, the research that was undertaken. And to do this, the climate scientists, um, I think quite successfully, became truly involved in the context of cities. So they worked alongside societal stakeholders, including municipality representatives, national government, uh, NGOs and civil society groups. And another real success, and in order to be able to work with societal stakeholders, I think, was to really challenge or open up the science. So challenging the assumptions of climate science and the way it is produced, opening it up and allowing the societal stakeholders to be, to, to, to be involved in this process. And this does seem quite radical for climate change research or, or climate science research. But in the transdisciplinary research world, um, and for those who don't understand or haven't engage with transdisciplinary research. This is really about research that involves doing science with society. So equal contribution of knowledge from science and society, be open to contradictions and not having agreement between everybody, um, opening up to many different potential futures, thinking about what the added value is of climate change information. But hopefully over time and building on the success and with dedicated effort, there can be just more of a mutual trust between science more generally and decision-making more generally so that there's less smoke and mirrors in terms of how the climate science is produced 
uh, more honesty, more humility, and more understanding about what's possible in terms of climate science research and how that can influence um, decision-making. I just want to follow up because I imagine that working with such a diverse range of stakeholders and cities, um, it, it wasn't easy. And although the approaches you mentioned you employed help with that, um, could you perhaps talk to some of the main challenges or, or lessons that you learned from Fractal's work? Yeah, so I think uh, in line with what you were saying, some of the, the main challenges that we have experienced are directly related to, to some of the successes. So although we worked according to several ideals, which are rooted in transdisciplinarity, as, as I've mentioned before, we needed, I think we need to apply and we needed to apply a more critical eye to many of these aspects. So for example, power dynamics between different types of researchers, between researchers and societal stakeholders, um, between different groups of people and thinking about how this influences the process of, of producing the knowledge or this ideal of co-producing knowledge that is useful for everybody. Um, I think it's also hard to capture a lot of these these um, these successes that I've mentioned in, in the, the reporting processes that we're so used to in these kind of projects. So in practical terms, what are, what are the changes that we're hoping to see uh, when we talk about something like climate change resilience? Because this is something very different from the, the production of a scientific paper or a new model. So is it in the people? Is it in the policies? Is it, is it in the landscapes? How do we implement mechanisms to understand the nuances of these, these changes? And then something else that we have been sort of grappling with is this idea of scaling. So because these are very sort of, they're, they're very much social processes that involve the people in a particular context and they're supposed to be responsive to a particular context, how do we scale these processes um, so that they can be implemented over over broader, uh, over uh, larger areas, and perhaps even more quickly because it took a lot of time and effort, as I've mentioned. Great. Thanks, Alice. Thanks for your reflections. I think some uh, really important lessons which we can take forward for um, future climate research programs. Let's move over to East Africa. As we've heard in our previous episodes, High Crystal has been working to improve understanding of East African climate change, such as the East Africa climate paradox and helping to understand the impact and adaptation options for urban and rural livelihoods. Today, I have Professor John Marsham from the University of Leeds, who is the principal investigator for High Crystal. So great to have you here with us today, John. Can you perhaps um, delve into what have been some of the key achievements or on-the-ground successes from the High Crystal project? Hi, uh, thanks for the invitation. Um, I think, well, firstly, I'd highlight the growth of the community. So High Crystal was a project that came out of a, an initiative that started a bit before the Future Climate for Africa program called HIVIC that had brought together stakeholders and academics and practitioners in the region with researchers from the UK and USA um, and started to build a community, but it really wasn't a group of people or institutions that had worked a lot together before. So I think High Crystal has really well consolidated those links and it's grown tremendously through the time. And I think that kind of community of practice and research will outlive the project. On the actual research itself, I mean, it's across the fundamental climate change science through to the decisions. I think we've, we've achieved a lot on the, the climate science. I think you mentioned the East Africa climate change paradox. So that's one thing we've been looking at amongst many others. I think the, the strategy of the climate change really can be thought about in some sense in terms of the narratives of climate change that we produce so we can't say for certain what will happen but 
the science was directed at things that are relevant to users to reduce storylines of possible futures. And we've done a lot of work on extremes because ultimately it's the weather in the future that uh, people feel and are affected by, and it's the extreme weather that carries the impact. And we've shown that extremes are likely underestimated in all global climate models and understood why that is in the particular context of the unique situation of East Africa. And then on the impact side, we had two two main pilots um, in the project, one on urban water and sanitation and one on rural livelihoods. That expanded to include tea production and looking at Lake Victoria Lake levels. The urban pilots were focused on Kampala and Kasumu, two big cities which are growing really fast um, on the shores of Lake Victoria. And they're both actually now carrying out major citywide sanitation investments. So findings from our pilots can now be used to help prioritise climate resilient investments in those cities. And I think it's true to say that's the first example of coupling climate hydrological and sanitation and health data and models to inform that kind of planning. And then the rural work uh, is being characterised really about working across scales right the way from farmer through regions up to the national and the transnational scale. So at the farmer scale, we've um, been working with farmers to create video storytelling to allow them to really engage with local government. And then at the regional scale, bringing together information in a new framework called the IDAPS framework um, to bring together the information the decisions need decision makers need. And then at the national scale, feeding directly into things such as the Uganda National Environment Bill um, to highlight the kind of information that needs to be collected to inform climate resilient livelihoods. Thanks, John. You mentioned some of the advances made in understanding climate science. And I had a question which um, ties with the point Alice raised about distilling climate information. Uh, I know High Crystal developed the climate risk narratives for urban and um, rural um, areas in East Africa. Could you maybe tell us a bit about how providing this climate information um, helped to inform decision makers in the region? So those narratives, as you say, um, they outline possible futures without putting any weighting on those on which future is most likely, because that's an extremely difficult problem to address. And the same fundamental climate science is informing those in two different contexts, um, so urban and rural contexts. So how, how that forms decision making. So, I mean, under climate change, uh, the atmosphere can, is able to hold more water and that allows extreme rainfall to increase, even when average rainfall doesn't increase. So these cities, for example, are already vulnerable um, to flooding and very recently, we saw the highest ever recorded le levels of Lake Victoria following an exceptional rainfall season. And following those flood events, um, the UT tend to get outbreaks of diseases such as cholera, which are waterborne, plus the direct impacts of people in terms of displacement. So in terms of how you make um, the population more resilient to those flood events and reduce the health impacts, as I said, you can either, there's sort of approaches through improved infrastructure um, but these are obviously expensive. Or the research has highlighted how, how you manage that infrastructure can actually produce some really low cost returns on improving your resilience, both to current and future climate. So producing um, benefits on quite short timescales, which is, motivates rapid implementation, while longer term decisions are made about future infrastructure. What would you say were some of the challenges or limitations that High Crystal faced? I think, as everyone would agree, that the Future Climate for Africa programme was 
and was intended to be immensely ambitious. Um, yeah, in a few years to go from fundamental new climate, new climate science into decision making through to impact is, is really ambitious. And I'm very conscious that our pilots are just pilots. They really now need to be scaled up. Um, applying those lessons learned a much, on a much larger scale. The timescale has been really challenging. So despite having an existing network to build on, um, we've had to bring in new stakeholders and it's taken time to build those relationships and trust. For example, it was only quite recently towards the end of the project that we managed to get hold of some key data for one of our pilots because people are understandably protective of data sets and that individual relationships and trust building is really important for that. And I think that shows the value of long-term in, um, engagement. And as I said, there's some city planning efforts going underway now. So although our research is well-timed to inform that, you know, in terms of delivering impact, we can only really hope to start to see that now or after the project ends. And to maximise that, that needs continued dialogue and engagement. And that's really hard with a, a short, you know, five-year funded project. I think the other thing on the more scientific side is I think, you know, I come from a research background and understood broadly what kind of resources were needed to deliver the research. I think we underestimated how much was needed to op- what I would call kind of operationalize research um, to really transform the models and observations and other information we have into the numbers that the decision makers need. It's kind of a whole field in itself. We ended up with the, the same researchers doing both. And that's where um, some flexibility of funding, I think, was one area that could have been useful to slightly redirect some of our project resources. Thanks for those reflections and um, for that insight, John. I'll now move over to West Africa. So we have Dr. Chris Taylor from the UK Centre for Ecology and Hydrology and the Principal Investigator for AMA 2050. Uh, We've heard about some of the advances AMA 2050 has made in understanding megastorms in the Sahel and the impacts on West Africa's agriculture and urban planning. But Chris, could you now perhaps give us some more insight into what you would say you were most proud of AMA 2050 achieving? Well, actually, just picking up on what John was saying about the community and seeing a community grow has been, you know, that's been a real source of pride for me. The leadership that African scientists, I mean, the project was led from the UK, but uh, the leadership that was um, that came from our partners in Senegal and Burkina Faso was uh, fantastic to see, to see so many early career scientists from Africa writing their first papers, you know, helping them over some of the challenges that every scientist has with, you know, getting through difficult reviews, etc. Uh, and you know, the fact that there's a really nice, well, the, the project as a whole has produced a very nice body of work, but a significant fraction of that has been led by African scientists, young African scientists often. And then some of the, the ones at a more senior level, uh, getting back in touch with them six months ago, and they've moved on, they've moved on to a higher position, they've taken on a, you know, professorship or something like that. Uh, and that's just... That's a, that's a great thing to see. I'm certainly proud of the science that we've done, the climate science that we've done in West Africa. Um, we came into AMA 2050 with our stakeholders saying, look, we really have to do something about 
uh, flooding. This is becoming a big problem. So, for example, when we were talking to people in Wagadougou, they had a big um, storm in 2009, which totally reshaped people's perceptions. Um, 100,000 people had to leave their homes, uh, lots of damage and a, a real change to the extent that uh, decision makers really, you know, started to want, they they needed to have answers to this kind of question about um, intense rain and whether that was changing, the role that land use was having, that kind of thing. And over the course of the project, you know, we built up a whole series of strands of evidence to show that the, you know, the, the rainfall intensity has been going up and understanding then why that's happening through these big storms that track across West Africa and how um, they've become much more frequent. So, for example, they're occurring three times the frequency of back in the 1980s. So it's a remarkably rapid change in um, flood-producing storms. And, you know, we managed to link that to the global climate. Uh, This is a really challenging thing to do. Um, And through some of the really novel computer modeling that was done in the Impala project that Kath Senior was talking about, uh, getting a much better understanding of what storms will look like in the future and trying to uh, understand how that translates into, uh, in particular, into urban flooding. Thanks, Chris. So you spoke about the progress in understanding West Africa's climate and the impact on urban planning and engaging with decision makers. But can you maybe speak a bit about what are some of the approaches um, AMA 2050 used to engage with decision makers? Yeah, um, there's a really nice example, actually, that I was, that really engaged with decision makers, but also with scientists such as myself. So it was interesting hearing Alice earlier on talking about um, uh, you know the journey that scientists go on uh, and the perceptions um, that can be overturned um, in AMA 2050 we had we commissioned a group of actors to do something called theater forum where they developed a, a, a short piece about uh, climate adaptation in a village in Senegal um, and they had a number of seven or eight characters for example the the uh, international funder and the scientist and the climate the the agricultural scientist the climate scientist the crop breeder the different characters in the village um and um they played this uh piece and there's a conflict of course as there always is and they at the end of it we all uh, talk to each other about our different perceptions of it. And in the room, there were, you know, people from the uh, regional government and there were climate scientists and there were um, agricultural specialists. And uh, and then, and it really, hearing, it was as if, you know, we'd been watching complete different plays. You know, to me, this was a big surprise just to, to recognise such diverse perspectives. Um, and then they played it again and they got different characters to put, they got people in the audience to come up and play uh, the roles again. And uh, it was an extraordinary experience, actually. Um, and I think that really helped. Well, I can speak from a personal experience. It made a big impact on me 
Um, but I think it also helped uh, the decision makers and others to, you know, get their hands on the, un- get a better understanding of uncertainty of climate and how to adapt uh, to that. Thanks, Chris. Lastly, let's go to Malawi and Tanzania, where Umfula has been hard at work understanding the energy-water-food nexus and how to inform decisions under climate uncertainty. Today, we have Professor Declan Conway from the Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change and the Environment at the London School of Economics and Political Science and Principal Investigator for Umfula. Declan, could you provide some details on what you think were the key achievements from Umfula? So firstly, you, you mentioned Tanzania and Malawi. Mfula was, was also broadly looking at the Central and Southern African region. And I wanted to make the point that we studied the, the climate science of that region, and it's arguably very much um, understudied in the past. And we made some very significant inroads into a, a scientific understanding of both the drivers of climate, so what, what makes it vary from year to year or within years, and also how the climate in that region might change in, in the future. Um, what rate is it going to warm? Is it going to get wetter? Is it going to get drier? So we're very proud of our, our achievements there. I think we've made a, a good contribution to the um, limited understanding that there was before the before the project. And then the second one is around our, our what we sometimes called the, the pilot studies. In our case, it was two river basins, one in Tanzania, the Rafiji River Basin and one in Malawi, the Lake Malawi Shire River Basin system. Both of those are earmarked for quite major development in terms of expansion of irrigation and expansion of existing hydropower dams or new hydropower dams. And there are decisions within the river basins that cut across what we call the water food energy nexus where we recognise that there are connections between using water in one location of the basin, using it in another, and uh, decisions about what you do with water in one place have implications or trade-offs for what you can or can't do with it in another. So we were interested in trying to get a better understanding of water management in those river basins and then understanding, given development um, development investments in dams and and, and irrigation, how well would that infrastructure work under a a changed climate in the future? That takes me to the third success achievement that we we felt we wanted to highlight, and that is that the, the strong role and benefits that we felt occurred through early career researchers. So we had a quite a large team of PhD students, master's students who were registered at different universities. We were also working with non-governmental organisations, often with quite young staff. And through training, through the research process, through the interactions with those early career researchers, I think that we've made a real contribution to an enlarged community of people who appreciate the different requirements in terms of the science, the consultation, interaction, and uh, the sort of multidisciplinary perspective that you need to do this type of work. And uh, that that community very quickly moves into new jobs and takes the learning and the messages into broader society. So that highlights uh, um, a really strong contribution, I think, from from the project. Are there any lessons, Declan, you would like to take away from uh, Umfula's research? The key lesson is that 
I, I think that we are all in this together, uh, and that society is is facing a new challenge. We we have high confidence that we well we know the climate is already changing. We know it's going to continue changing in the future, and society hasn't really, or modern societies haven't had to get to grips with this challenge. And therefore, all of us are moving into the unknown, and there are no blueprints about exactly how we approach this. And therefore, we we found I think we found challenges because some people are there are different levels of awareness, different levels of understanding. People have different priorities. Climate change might be one of just many stresses that they face. But um, by bringing in issues, by framing conversations around climate, around climate risk, we can relate to the recent past that John and, and Chris mentioned about the importance of understanding recent variability in extremes. That helps make the challenges and problems more tangible to decision makers. And it's through it's through a approaching the the sort of interdisciplinary nature of these conversations that we we can address some of some of those challenges that that we that we find. So Alice um, what are some of your recommendations you have for future research um, programs that are conducting climate research uh, within Africa? What I would say is keep doing the stuff that seems really hard and build on the relationships that have been established and don't be afraid to build new relationships across diverse groups of people to work on this topic. I think that FCFA broke through so many barriers and I think that we need to continue along this path into the future. And align with, in line with this is this idea of interdisciplinary or transdisciplinary work that all of the, I'm hearing all the projects within FCFA have really um, taken forward in, in, the, in the climate science research world. And then something that John mentioned that I think is, is very worth touching on when thinking about moving into this kind of work into the futures, we can't expect, I think it's very uh, unreasonable for us to expect that the new important science um, advances that have been made automatically and instantly link with the real world decisions. John was talking about the challenge of, of, of linking this new science, this really important new science that has been produced instantly with, with, with real world decisions. And I think this is something we need to sit with for a while and think about what that means for designing climate change research projects into the future. And, and maybe, John, I'll just follow up and ask you the same question. Um, where do you think we go from here? Do you have any uh, recommendations for future programmes? I think the Future Climate for Africa programme has, it's really kind of blazed the trail in some aspects. I'm sure if we did it all again, like any research, you would change things. I think it's shown enormous progress is possible. Um, even with what is, you know, international research standards, relatively modest investment. That's true um, across the climate science where, you know, the program has aimed to address some of the sort of so-called grand challenges of science and, you know, if not solve them, made significant progress. Um, and also true in the applications. Um, one thing I'll come back to is the, point that Chris made about relating to the weather that's happening now and in the recent past. Um, we found that really valuable and engaging with decision makers. I mean, most people, you know, they're thinking about today, tomorrow, next few years, and people relate to the weather that's around them now. And being able to have that conversation around the ongoing 
extremes and their impacts and how those relate to anticipated future impacts, I think is, is really important for working with non-scientists or maybe scientists in a sort of more operational setting, making decisions, essentially because those people very often, you know, if you're managing the water or agriculture or something, you you don't only work on one timescale. You don't only work in long-term planning. You work across timescales. And so it's really valuable to have those conversations across timescales and say how, you know, for example, the recent record-breaking floods of Lake Victoria, um, how do those link to climate change? Uh, so, Chris, would you also now perhaps like to jump in on the conversation around what you'd like to give as recommendations for future programmes? Just listening to John, I'd really underscore what he was saying about this kind of link between the weather today, next week, next month, next year, uh, well, later in the season, with what's happening in 20, 30, 40 years' time. We... we in almost every conversation we had with uh, stakeholders, um, we would spend the first half hour actually trying to disentangle, trying to clarify, you know, our stated aim of focusing on five to 40 years and disentangling that from uh, seasonal forecasting, for example, which is kind of artificial. And, um, preparing, you know, building resilience to uh, floods in 30 years' time, as John said earlier on, can be, uh, you know, you can take significant steps by building resilience to storms that are uh, predicted, you know, the following day by, for example, clearing drains or whatever. Um, so I think there's a really strong um, link there in timescales that needs to be made. And I suppose the other point I would make, which is uh, perhaps topical right now for people in the UK research community, is about continuity and about building strong research networks. And um, FCFA did really well in um, supporting um, some activities beyond the end of the project in the hope of... um, you know, making some kind of bridge onto future enterprises, I guess. You know, those those networks are so strong. And in, in West Africa, we were really lucky because we were building on a very strong network already from a previous project called AMA, which um, involved a lot of the groups, well, some of the groups in AMA 2050 anyway. Uh, and so that kind of continuity of funding is really important and building that trust and understanding that, a funder is there for the long term and isn't just there for the next three years. Declan, are there any other points you would like to add on that? Well, I, I, I support the points which have been made already. And I, I wonder whether just one additional point to stress is that the, the integrated nature of what we're trying to do, to do is important and avoiding silos where we only focus on one part of the problem is is crucial, I think. So projects need to take forward improved understanding in the climate science, but also interactions between climate scientists and intermediaries, knowledge brokers who are taking, converting, communicating that information to different types of stakeholders and so on. And those processes need to go hand in hand. So um, movements across all fronts or investments across all fronts 
and bringing people together in that process is very important. Thanks so much for sharing, everyone. It's so great to hear how the past few years of hard work and research have culminated in a range of different changes, and I look forward to seeing how the impact grows in the future. While there has been a lot of progress, it's clear that there's still a long way to go in scaling up efforts. FCFA has made a solid foundation and has a range of learning on how to go about combining improvements in scientific understanding while also working towards solving real-world problems that are impacted by climate change. This was the last episode in this mini-podcast series on the work of FCFA, and we're so glad that you've joined us for the journey. We hope that you feel more informed about climate change in Africa and that you will continue to expand your knowledge on this relevant and important topic. We would love to hear from our listeners. If you have any questions or comments, please email info at futureclimateafrica.org. If you'd like to learn more about what we mentioned on this podcast, please visit futureclimateafrica.org. You can also follow us on Twitter on the handle at future underscore climate or on LinkedIn under Future Climate for Africa. Take a look at the podcast show notes for links to more information about the topics discussed.